Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but struggling to find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, Insider Inc. is looking for a graphic designer in New York City. Gensler is looking for a CAD technician in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Dexcom is looking for a senior UX designer in San Diego, California. And Foundation Medicine is looking for an associate director of design for their experienced design team. If you're looking for remote work, then check out these listings. OPS Group is looking for a dev and design superhero. MKG Design is looking for a digital slash print production designer. And Turo is looking for a director of product design as well as a senior product designer. Companies, stop making excuses on your DNI efforts and post your job listings with us. For just $99, your listing will be on our job board for 30 days, and we'll spread the word for you about your job to our diverse audience of listeners. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more info on these listings. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, I just want to talk about our sponsor really quickly for this episode, Facebook Design. To learn more about how the Facebook design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Carmela Wilkins, a graphic designer at AB Partners in New York City. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, everyone. My name is Carmela Wilkins, and I'm a graphic designer at AB Partners, which is a digital strategy and creative storytelling agency that is Black-owned and founded. Nice. I definitely want to get more into that. But before we do, you know, of course, we are recording this now. It's in the middle of... I'm even loath to say it's the middle because of the rise in cases. I feel like we're still somewhere in the beginning, but how are you holding up during this time right now? Oh my goodness. I would have to say the biggest struggle for me existing in the same space in which I work and also live, Mm -hmm. you know, or I used to be able to leave my apartment and go to the office and then be able to come back home, you know, my retreat, my safe haven, but now there's no distinction between the two because my desk and my bed are about, I don't know, a third of an inch away from one another. Uh-huh. It, that's something that I've experienced since working from home and having the privilege to work from home that it's, especially the first couple of months, it was really difficult to, to have that distinction to create space for myself where I can just rest and be at ease and also explore my own personal pursuits within my practice. So that's something that's definitely been difficult. And also having to support and maintain my family as the breadwinner. My family, they live in Rhode Island. And during 
the beginning of the pandemic, the beginning of quarantine, I had to run around and figure out how to get my sister who's studying abroad in Japan, well, who was supposed to study abroad in Japan this past semester from Tokyo back to the U.S. Because, wow. yeah, it was, it was really intense. My greatest fear was that number 45 was going to just block off all of East Asia, including U.S. citizens, and that would cause an entirely new problem. But I was very lucky. Me and my mom were very lucky to get my sister over here as soon as we could. So very thankful for that. Goodness. I didn't even think about, like, I knew that there were supposed to be some, like, travel restrictions from, I think, some countries in Europe. But I hadn't even considered Asia. Although I think now countries want to keep us out. Like, I think the EU yeah. just <laughs> recently is like, yeah, Americans, y'all can stay over there. Like, don't yeah. come over here. It's a real kind of interesting struggle. I think a lot of folks are are getting into, you know, I'd say so a few months ago, I was working for a company and uh, uh, right around like early March, the folks that were in the New York office, they said, okay, we're going to close the office and you have to work from home. And then they had to kind of adjust to kind of being in this sort of now space where you have to work and live in the same spot. And I've worked remotely for like over 10 years now I live in Atlanta. So like for me, it wasn't a big, huge departure in that, like you said, like your bed or your desk are like a third of an inch away from each other. Same. But I think what's been, been rough is like not having the option to leave. Like you could leave and go somewhere, but it's just not the smart thing to do. So it's like this weird kind of push pull tension between wanting to almost want to say rebel and go out. But then there's also like the fear of missing out if you're staying inside and being safe. So you're like, Oh, what should I do? You know, what's the right choice to make? So I understand that. How has it been in New York? New York has been very interesting. It's had so many ups and downs. I have had my family from all the States outside of New York contacting me left and right from overseas, just wondering if I'm okay. How am I eating? How am I paying my rent? Like, how do I still have a roof over my head? And it's it's been kind of stressful um, to reassure everyone that, like, hey, I'm okay. You yeah. know, I'm doing a responsible thing. If I am leaving my apartment, I'm also coordinating with the three other people that I live with. We have this, like, rotating schedule of who's leaving the house to, specifically for groceries, not for, you know, everything else, not for, like, if I'm going for a walk or something. Mm-hmm. But earlier on in the quarantine in New York, when we were really confined to our to just our apartment and we were concerned with if one of our roommates were sick or not and not knowing, like just having this massive air of uncertainty with what was going on in the household and just how we were going to sustain ourselves. So we just created this really awesome system of how we're going to get groceries, who's going to get it, who has greater safety net in a way, like physical safety net almost. Mm-hmm when it comes to going outside and retrieving groceries and coming back and sharing that space in the kitchen and how to do that in a mindful way. If we were cautious about say one of our roommates being sick, which actually did happen. One of my roommates were sick for about like 35 days and we were very Whoa. confused and also scared, honestly. And they were definitely scared as well if they were sick or not, if they had COVID, but we all got tested, I believe last month well, three out of the four of us got tested last month and two, including myself, came back negative. And then one of my roommates came back positive. 
So oh. we don't really know what it means because it doesn't really mean anything. The tests aren't a hundred percent accurate. So we're just kind of like, okay, we live together. Like we're just going to continue watching for each other's symptoms and see what happens. That is both confusing and scary. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, to, to take the test, I mean, of course, to know whether or not you're, you're negative or positive, but then because it seems like, well, the virus is mutating and, you know, the symptoms are changing and it's, wow, I hope you're staying safe. I mean, I, I don't really know what advice to kind of give in that situation than just to be vigilant, wash your hands. I don't know. I don't know. Mask, social distancing, all the yeah. stuff. Wow. Let's talk about AB Partners. You mentioned it being a, a digital strategy firm. It's black owned. How has it been adjusting to working from home? Have they been cool with everything? I am so thankful to be working where I work. Like we have had moments on a one-to-one basis with on the team. We've also had moments as a full team to just talk about the current reality that we are all facing and that is impacting us in various ways that we either have chosen to spoke about or haven't spoken about to one another. And this is also my first like full-time job before I was freelancing. So it's really comforting to know that management team and those that are really overseeing everything have employers in mind, like our health, our, our mental well-being, our overall well-being in mind. And if at any point during the last, I don't know how many months it's been, I'm like losing track of time at this point. <laughs> <laughs> like if at any point we needed to just take a step back from all the craziness that's going on, it's okay to do so and that they completely understand. So that was really, really important for me because I really value work-life balance. I think they've done a great job at that. Like in the beginning of the quarantine, they were just like, hey folks, so we want everyone to be really comfortable and, you know, adjust themselves to working from home. Like, here's some like extra cash like on us to really make your room more habitable for working and living. And I that was really that was really kind. They didn't have to do that, but but they did and I really appreciated that. So did everyone else. Yeah, it's interesting how in this time you're seeing the companies that are exhibiting grace and saying, you know, we understand this is an unprecedented time. We're going to care for you as the employee, as a person. And then there are the companies that are just like, nope, full steam ahead. Keep going. So it's good that you're working for a place that is is allowing the circumstances to kind of shape sort of what your current reality is like they're helping out with money. They're saying, if you need to take a mental health day or something, take it. That's great. That's really great. What do your work days look like now? My work days can be unpredictable. We recently had, I say recently, but like within the last two months, we had a really awesome happy hour. And during happy hour, we have this, we have a go around where basically one person, usually a new person asks a question, any question they want to everyone on the team and everyone has to answer. And someone had asked like, what makes an A beer an A beer? And it was just like this perfectly crafted question that was so unexpected at the same time that really made everyone think like, what makes someone an A beer? Like why, like why and how would they belong in our like company culture? And for me, it's that, it's that like the sky's the limit mentality that no project is too small or big to tackle not only as an individual, but as a team. And everyone has this like, go, go, go mentality to really, you know, accomplish the overall objective. So that's, that's what a day to day basis at AB is like. 
not just for me, I think for everyone on the team as well. We all are really great at pushing each other and also supporting one another and just checking in. And mm-hmm. like, even though, you know, everything is online these days, like via Slack for us, it's so easy to, you know, just ping someone and be like, hey, like I'm having a problem on this. Can you help me out? Can we jump on a phone call really quickly so we can just like go through this so we're both, you know, so we can both reach a consensus. And that's something that I think is really important on a day-to-day basis where things can be really unexpected. Like some days I have really light days um, and I'm reaching out to other folks in the team just seeing where they need help and assistance. And other days I'm just like booked uh, yeah. with design ask. And I'm like, okay, everyone, I have X and Y, Z things to do today. I need to focus on this to really get it out there. But yeah, it really changes. <laughs> it really changes. What kind of projects do you work on in general? So I've worked on a little bit of everything so far. Off the top of my head, some branding, social media, graphics, social media content overall. We have like a, an inside joke at AB where we are constantly working on decks, like constantly, always <laughs> working on decks. Decks are like a major like party at AB because as soon as it happens, as soon as someone's like, oh, like this client needs a deck or like we are presenting a, a deck for a client, all hands on deck. Like everyone's in it. Everyone's trying to figure out the best way to convey information visually. And we're also trying to figure out how to synthesize our thoughts and feelings about AB to the client or the thoughts and feelings of the client to their audience. So it, it really changes. And that's something I I genuinely appreciate when it comes to the the many projects. And that would also include, like, for me, branding. Branding has been really fun. Lots of energy to it. Our clients are, our clients are really, really, they vary. They really vary. So it's always a surprise to see, like, what's coming down to the design pipeline. I've done a lot of, like, video editing, which... I love Premiere so much. I don't, with like within my own personal practice, I don't really work in Premiere that much, but I found myself making like a lot of GIFs and doing like video editing for hours and hours on end, which I genuinely enjoy the trial and error process. Just like having this vision in your head. And then like when you finally execute it, it just makes me feel so good. Um, and that's just like a few of the many things that I've gotten my hands in the last couple of months. Yeah, it sounds like you're able to kind of skip around and do a lot of different sorts of things, which is good. How did you first get started there? When did I apply? I think I applied ending of last year. And the funny thing is, it was really by chance. I was between two options, either pursuing a full-time job or a fellowship abroad. And I was like, wow, it'd be really great to leave the country again and go explore and also really evolve my practice in a way that is unanticipated depending on the geographical environment of course or build my experience as a professional working at an agency agency because that's something that I hadn't had the chance to do before so I applied for both and I was like okay like whatever happens happens and I was really into AB I had actually (laughs) really funny story I had actually taken about maybe three or four months to actually apply to AB because I was so nervous about applying in the first place. Mm -hmm. I was like, Oh no, like I shouldn't like, maybe (laughs) I'll I'll look at it the week after. And I just come putting it off, putting it off. And then I went away for a month. I had a a residency an artist residency in the Adirondacks. And I met this amazing human being named Lori P. And we had so many great 
conversations. They're also a, a black female. And so we had these like really energetic, powerful conversations. And I just happened to bring up my, <laughs> my reluctance to apply to this dream job. And they were like, why don't you just apply? And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> just shocked. Uh, and then I eventually applied and went through the interview process and got in. And I started, I started, I think like mid January and I believe it's been about five, maybe six months at this point. Oh, wow. So you're fairly new there. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you started off kind of right before all of this sort of pandemic stuff happened, which is, I, <laughs> I, I'm curious knowing that the other choice that you had was, the possibility of working abroad, like, do you still feel like you made the right choice? Oh, I definitely think I made the right choice because I also had to weigh my responsibilities, my family responsibilities, taking Mm -hmm. care of my mom, my sister. So it was either like, okay, Carmela, it'd be great to go abroad and do your, you know, your art thing, your design thing. But you also have the, the stress and anxiety that will come from, you know, maybe not accumulating the, amount of monthly income that you would need to just not only support yourself, but support your family back home. Um, so I had to make a very adult decision and I'm glad that I did because when all this happened, I was like just relief, automatic relief that I am one of the lucky folks that, you know, still have a job and are able to work from home. And I am very thankful for that. Yeah. Before your work at AB partners, I see that you were, you're a graphic designer at a nonprofit uh, group called Minds Matter. How is it kind of doing visual design work for a nonprofit versus the work that you do now for an agency? So working in the nonprofit sector before AB, it was an opportunity for me to provide my skills in an area that most of the time, from my personal experience, graphic designers don't really go towards the nonprofit sector. It's more towards the for-profit sector for the prestige and also because usually the branding is already there. But within the nonprofit sector, I have a deep connection and admiration for what most nonprofits, just for what nonprofits stand for. And I really wanted to be able to elevate their, their visual narrative and their mission um, so that's how I got involved in the nonprofit sector in the first place. So at Minds Matter, I really enjoyed their mission and like what they stand for, like helping low-income high school students achieve higher education. That is my childhood story. So it just it just really pulled at my heartstrings throughout the entire time that I was there. But one thing that I noticed was that as a designer, there were some inconsistencies with how they portrayed themselves in person and online, and I really wanted to marry those two things so they're more cohesive. And for me, that is the biggest difference with working, having had worked at a nonprofit versus an agency where at an agency, I'm not just working with one with one client, with one entity. I'm working with multiple clients from various backgrounds and the needs are always different and specific to the client. And within an agency setting, having other creatives to collaborate with and share ideas with and also report to is a completely different experience than working in a nonprofit where the only person I had reported to was the Minds Matter New York chapter director, Erica Halston. And she had some experience with working with designers, but she isn't her di- she isn't a designer herself, so it's a different experience. 
So that's something that I saw straight away within my first like three months working at AB compared to the entire time I worked at Minds Matter. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I, when I first started my studio back in, God, what was that, late 08, early 09, I started off doing work with nonprofits and then eventually ended up kind of migrating towards being able to do more Honestly, just more lucrative work. I mean, and I like the idea of working with nonprofits, especially if they have a really strong cause that you can get behind. I just find that really, for me, help makes the work better because, you know, it's not just in service of like, oh, we have to fulfill this for the client. But like, no, this is like something that could actually really help somebody, like save a life in some instances, depending on, you know, the type of nonprofit that you're working with. So what would you say working at Media Matters really taught you? I would have to say that just being able to meet the students, Minds Matter, I didn't really have the the opportunity to do so all the time, but the few times I did get to meet them, it just really made the work more meaningful. And that for me, just like, it just really like reassured my position as someone who wants to create things, not just for aesthetic consumption, but that can have an impact in the work and like through their mission, like for a student to see themselves like on print or online and something that I created and getting feedback from that student was really refreshing and could also be quite comical at times to, you know, to hear their responses. So for me, that was the joy that had came from that experience and is the reason why I'm more drawn towards organizations that have some type of socially driven mission. Gotcha. And I, I misspoke that I said media matters. It was minds matters. I apologize about that. <laughs> Let's uh, switch gears here a little bit. You know, you mentioned um, earlier your family. Where did you grow up? So I am currently located in Brooklyn, New York, but I am not a New York native. I am from Pawtucket, Rhode Island, like the town in Family Guy, which is the only connection that folks have to Rhode Island. Every time when I mention it, like, they're like, oh, yeah, like, it's not where Family Guy was based off of. I'm like, actually, yeah, Seth MacFarlane, he went to RISD. Who would have thought? <laughs> um, but yeah, so I grew up in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, spent most of my life there, and then went through a bit of a rebellious phase unexpectedly on my mom's account <laughs> when I was in my late teens. And I was like, okay, I don't think, I don't think that this place is meant for me anymore. Like I need to be somewhere else. I don't know where that place is, what it looks like, but I really want to see what is outside of the four corners of the state. So I unexpectedly just ended up going to Germany out of all places because I found out that I had an aunt who lives in this very small village between, I believe, um, the Netherlands and Germany. And went and stayed with her for, for some time. And originally my plan was to live and study there. So learn German, go to university there. Because my greatest fear was going to college in the U.S. and ending in a ridiculous amount of debt from all the horror stories that relatives were telling me um, as they were fortunate enough to be you know, college graduates from various institutions in the U.S. But then leaving with crippling debt and that just instilled this fear in me that like I don't want to have these invisible chains on me when it comes to my financial readiness being an an adult so I had that experience of being in Germany for a bit but it was short-lived because unexpectedly my mom she had an accident on the job in the U.S. Mm -hmm. and 
biggest concern was, okay, like who is going to take care of her? Like my sister is too young to do that. I'm literally the only person. So I, you know, I took some time to myself and I was like, okay, look, well, my mom took care of me for literally my entire life until I left the house. It's my turn to do the same thing. So I ended up leaving Germany and going back home and basically was a stay at home nurse for my mom for about like eight months. So I like took time off of school and yeah, and just took care of her which I know she really appreciated. And I'm glad that I was in a position to do that for her. And then long story short, (laughs) I ended up going back to school, actually in the UK for about a year and a half. I like applied for the scholarship. I knew that I didn't want to pursue higher education in the US because of once again, that fear of crippling debt. And I was like, anywhere but here, anywhere but here. And was fortunate enough to get a scholarship at Falmouth University in the south of the UK in Cornwall. Where I was, where I was the only black person in this small Cornish town, and it was actually a really pleasant experience, except for a few instances. But yeah, it, it really shaped my worldly experience. There's also these, yeah, the second time that I had left the country, so it really impacted the way that I view things as a designer, like in contrast to my environment, because mm-hmm. even like some things like being able to get hair care products like for my hair type within that town was impossible like I had to order stuff from London and have it shipped to the south so that was quite the the interesting experience you have lived a life already (laughs) I mean there's there's a lot that you just mentioned here that I want to just kind of like briefly touch on I guess I'm curious about this rebellious phase because I know Rhode Island is like the smallest state so there's not a whole lot to do and see i would imagine just because it's so small but like what did this rebellious phase look like oh like i i honestly think i just woke up one day and i was like okay i I don't want to fall into this routine of you live here you know you were born here you lived here you go to school here you go to college here you get a full-time job you find someone pleasant to settle down with you get the whole 2.5 2.5 kids, white picket fence, house, and then the cycle repeats. I was kind of the black sheep in my family. And I was like, I actually actually don't want to do any of this mm-hmm. at all. Like, I don't want to stay here. Like, coming from an, a family of immigrants, I definitely appreciated my family struggle coming from Liberia and West Africa and immigrating during the Civil War to Rhode Island, giving me new opportunities as a, an American-born citizen. So, appreciate that. But for me, I just, I knew that there was more than what I was handed in life. And I wasn't born rich or anything. Um, But I was just thinking that there was more in the world out there for me. And I wanted to figure out how I could experience those things. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I was trying to sort of, I guess, put in context the, the rebellious part. But when you mentioned being first generation, I think that kind of summed it up. Because sometimes I think, you know, immigrant parents really want the best for their kids. And that often comes across in very forceful and rigid ways as to like how they want you to live your life as opposed to how you want to live your life. So, okay. I see that. I mean, I grew up in a very small town in Alabama and certainly I think I was planning on getting out to go to college by like sixth grade. I was like, I got to get out of here. So I, I understand like not wanting to fall into that like trap, especially if it's a small town because I mean, so I'm from, I'm from Selma, Alabama, and it's not, 
I mean, it's probably like about 20,000-ish people, but it's one of those towns where like everyone kind of knows everybody and there's like family histories and reputations. And there's definitely people that have like went through that whole cycle that you just mentioned, like for generations. And it's like, I do not want to get tied up into all of that. So good on you for being able to get out, you know, and really kind of see the world. I mean, from Germany and then back to the States and then to to the UK. I mean, how was it, I guess, that first time getting over there? Was it a culture shock? It was about a day. I think it may have been a day and a half of travel. It just felt very long. I don't, I yeah. think I'm exaggerating because it doesn't actually take that long to get from the East Coast to the UK, but it was just so much travel and everything was new. And I made a lot of mistakes. When it comes to culture shock, I would have to say a financial culture shock because at the time the pound was just killing the dollar, mm-hmm. like just killing it. And I remember my mom when she finally like agreed for me to to go overseas, and she you know she would send me money. She sent me like I don't know four hundred five hundred dollars, and then once it went through the conversion rate and everything, and I get pounds in return, I'd probably have like I don't know three hundred pounds to last me for the month. Yeah. And I would tell her this and she'd be so frustrated. She'd be like, why did you decide to go to the UK out of all places? It's so expensive there. Every time I send you money, I feel like I'm sending you nothing. And like, I, I stretched my budget. Like I've also just like grown up like with those experiences of, of having a stretched budget. So it wasn't anything new to me. Yeah. So I would just always tell my mom, I'm like, mommy, like this isn't anything like we've done this before. It's fine. The fact that I'm in another country having an education and I'm saving money because I got a scholarship, this is nothing. Like, I will have food in my belly. Like, I'll figure out art supplies. Like, I'll make friends. Like, borrow things. Like, you know, I'll get something going. Like, I'll, I'll get it sorted. And I don't want her to worry too much. Yeah. So, yeah, that was the biggest culture shock for me. British <laughs> mannerisms was also a culture shock for me. Slang was a culture shock for me. I actually find myself still today, because I, I still have kept um, a lot of UK friends, using British slang with my American friends. And I'll say something in the middle of a sentence, and they'll be like, wait, what did you just say? And I'd repeat it, like, for example, take the piss. Mm-hmm. I'll, be like, I'll be like, oh, you're just taking the piss. And they'll be like, what? <laughs> what? And I'll be like, why, how do you not understand this? Like, because I've just been just, I just been so used to it. And then yeah. I'll be like, wait, no, that's not, that's not an American term. And I'd be like, oh, it, it means that like taking the piss is just like, oh, you're, you're coming at me Yeah. in a way like, oh, like you're, why are you doing that? Yeah. Like you're trying to come for me basically. Yeah. Like, why are you come, like, why are you trying to come for me? Like, are you just joking? Like, are you taking the piss? That's what it means. Yeah. Now, like saying it out loud, it's even still like, <laughs> I just know what it is instinctively. I'm like, wait, how do I, <laughs> those are definitely some of the things. And one thing that happened during this time in the UK was I found out that I had family in West London and I had never met them. Mm. And that was quite a surprise for me. I was like, wait, what? Like, this is so weird. Like I've never met them. I don't know what they look like. And it wasn't even that year that I first studied in the UK. I think it was about a year and a half later that I had finally saved up enough money to go back to London to not only visit my friends, but to meet my UK family for the first time. And it was this magical, magical experience. I remember meeting my aunt, my auntie Geraldine, and she just made this massive feast for me, this like Liberian 
British fusion cuisine that I was just so taken aback by and so comforted by because she really took the time to be like, welcome to the UK. Well, welcome back to the UK. And (laughs) it was the equivalent of a massive hug. And I loved it so much. Nice. So with all of this kind of, not only just, you know, growing up in the States, but then also kind of you know, going back and forth between Europe and United States, like was design kind of a big part of your world? I mean, going to school and everything, like how did you first kind of know that this was what you wanted to do? When I was six, mm-hmm. <laughs> when I was six years old, my mom purchased my first easel. It was a yellow easel from Crayola. Terrible design now that I think about it. But <laughs> the six year old, I loved that thing to death. I had all of my little paints, my little paints that didn't work too well, that were poor quality, but they were my paints. And I made what I considered masterpiece after masterpiece. And I just like threw up everything around the house. And I remember telling my mom, mommy, when I get older, I'm going to be an artist. And she was like, okay, I believe in you. And that was, that was pretty <laughs> much it. <laughs> And yeah, I always knew that I was going to be an artist of some sort. At one point, I thought I was going to be a fashion designer, like that I was like hell bent on becoming a fashion designer. And what changed for me was there's a lot of police brutality happening in Providence, um, Providence, Rhode Island. And not just police brutality, but just all these other social and economic and environmental hindrances specifically happening within marginalized communities, you know, being a black person that, that really impacted me on an emotional and mental level. And I was like, I can't sit here and, you know, someday have my fashion design degree and 15, you know, maybe 10, 15 years down the line, sit with my fashion degree and be like, wow, I've done something really meaningful with my life. Like, I didn't think that I would have made the right decision. I feel like I would have had regret. So I just pivoted completely. And I was like, okay, well, I want to do something that is really mission driven, that is really giving back to the community, that isn't just, you know, making things pretty, which you know, sounds kind of contradicting since I'm a graphic designer, but no, I don't think so. Just to some people I've, I've heard this, unfortunately, but I have strong opinions that that isn't the case at all. And yeah, like I'm, I'm really glad that I took that change for the, for the better because I'm so happy with where I'm at right now. And I'm not bashing fashion designers at all because there's so much powerful fashion textiles related work coming down the line that have been really powerful and have just like moved social issues in the right direction. So just for me, it wasn't, I knew that wasn't the place for me, even though at one point I thought it was. Yeah. Now, even though you, you went to school for a time in the UK, you also went to Parsons in New York city. What was your time like there? Parsons? (laughs) I feel a love hate relationship with Parsons. The love comes from the, many amount of opportunities that I received from being at Parsons and just going in for any type of interview and having my resume read and people would gasp and be like, oh, you go to Parsons? And I'd be like, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah go to Parsons. Like, you know, it's, it's all right. Oh, <laughs> like, you must have worked really hard to get into that school. And I'm like, literally tooth, nail, blood, sweat, and tears, and I'm not even done yet. And that's where the the hate comes in because I had a lot of hurdles 
my first year and a half living in New York and haven't had moved to New York on my own. Like I didn't have any support in that way because I mentioned earlier, my mom had an accident on the job. So because of that accident, she is now disabled mm-hmm. and that, I mean, has definitely impacted not only her life and my sister's life, but also my life. So during this year and a half that I had to adjust to living in New York and find my own place and moving, I literally did everything by myself. So I know that's where kind of like the, I want to say hate, but like the like resentment of like having to be maybe like an adult almost too quickly, Mm -hmm. but also know that I was doing it with the right intention and right purpose in mind. So I got over that very quickly, but for Parsons, I don't know. I had one black teacher who was also queer that I was like, wow, this is great. Like, I think this might be a really good chance for me to see what Parsons is really about. But then just like being in that one class, which is a terrible experience, the teacher really catered to the white students in the class. And like, when I oh, like, you know, like when you see another black person, you're like, yeah, you're another black person. I too am black and I'm acknowledging the unspoken connection we have between one another. Yeah. I was like, I do that with the teacher. And the teacher was just like, no, nah, like I'm not the one. Oh, God. Without saying explicitly in words. And I was just like, okay, well that was, oh. that was unfortunate. What could have been wasn't. So that was one part of it that wasn't. Yeah, that was really unfortunate. And one other thing that really st- like sticks out from my experience at Parsons was dealing with the financial aid department. That was such a strenuous experience. Up until two months ago, when I finally finished paying off my last semester at Parsons to be given my diploma, which I received in the mail last Friday, mm. after I had graduated about a year ago. So that just, to me, speaks volumes to the, I don't know, the lack of communication and commitment that I personally have experienced and believe in that Parsons has when it comes to their black and brown students that cannot afford to maintain their full-time status, full-time and sometimes even part-time status. Like I had a lot of friends drop out within the first semester after their first year because they were like, I can't do this. Like they're not budging like at all. And I was very lucky that I made friends and connections in the right departments that were able, like who were able to, to speak on my behalf, who got me money when I thought I would, I wasn't even going to make it to the next semester. And like some way, somehow I graduated. And as the, you know, as a first gen graduate like from a four-year university that was that was a fight and I knew I was gonna win it was just how yeah yeah do you regret it no because things happen for a reason I believe that and I know that if I didn't have the experiences I've had up until this point in my life that I probably wouldn't be where I am now and one of the most climactic experiences that I had at Parsons was when I studied abroad. Um, I studied abroad through the School of International Training, which is a third-party program outside of Parsons. So Parsons is basically like, okay, like we don't have any connections with the study abroad um, program that you're trying to go through. We're not going to give you any money because usually, you know, the, the setup is that when you study abroad, whatever aid that you received as a student at your home university, it will transfer over to the study abroad program. But Parsons is the opposite because they were like oh, we don't know them. So I pretty much had to 
apply for all the scholarships and grants and save a lot of money. I think I saved up for about a year and a half before I actually studied abroad. And only like two weeks before I was supposed to leave the country for the study abroad program, did I know that I was able to secure my spot on the program to study abroad. Wow. Like it was that close cut. And I managed to get like, I think it was like $18,000 in scholarships. And then my mom was really awesome and, and helped me out and took out a parent plus loan, which just was the icing on the cake for me and made that reality possible. But specifically this program, um, focused on social entrepreneurship and innovation. And it was a multi-country program where we went to Uganda, India, and Brazil. And we, we got to look at the intersection of business, tech, and design. So it was this really beautiful like hodgepodge of different disciplines and how they interact with one another in various geographical contexts. And that was something that I always wanted. Like I, I think at some point, maybe like my first or second year at Parsons, I was like, I really want more experience in an international scale. Like I really want to give back to my West African community, but I don't know how to get started. So this program was a good you know, it was a good opportunity to gain more international experience and understanding how different systems work and how different systems and societies were designed. And this mm. is like where design played a big role in my life to where I am now, because when I was in the study abroad program, I was really focused on food and water systems and how they were designed and specifically the marginalized communities that existed in these, that exist today in these countries and how they're at a disadvantage when it comes to food and water, safety and sanitation. And I was like constantly thinking about like, why is this so poorly designed? Like, to not even have a toilet to have a private moment in is is basic sanitation on yeah. any level. And that for me really broke my heart because it was the same thing in every single country. Like we weren't just we weren't just living while taking up space really, taking up space in the poor and rich parts of the countries that we stayed in. But it was a really like well rounded and wholesome experience where I went in with no expectations. I was like, I'm not here to teach anyone anything. Like I'm here to be taught. I'm not here to make assumptions about your culture or what it stands for or what it doesn't stand for. Like I'm here to learn and like understand how things work because I'm not from here. I really understanding my positionality in the context of the people that I encountered during this time there. So I have like so many experiences for, from that, but what I really took away from it was, okay, I definitely want to work on an international level but how do I incorporate design into this? Design exists within these realms, but how can I get my foot in the door? Mm-hmm. And that was like a big turning point for me because I was like, okay, now I know what I need to work towards. Like now I know I'm a very like goal oriented person, very ambitious, and I love to make a list. And I make a list every single year. It's called the obtainables. And mm-hmm. it's everything that I want to obtain for that year. It's pretty much a replacement for... You know, you have your, what is it, your New Year's... Resolutions. Thank you, yeah, your New Year's resolutions. And I remember coming across an article that was like, this is why New Year's resolutions don't work. And I was like, hmm, interesting. And I read through it, and it was like, you basically need to redefine New Year's resolutions in a way that matters to you, that you want to achieve those objectives. And I was like, this makes so much sense. Let me just redesign New Year's resolution. So then I came up with the obtainables and I started the obtainables in 2016. And my list is long because 365 and a half days is a lot of time to get shit done. So (laughs) 
since then, since 2016, I've able to complete at, like a minimum of like 92% of my goals each year, um, wow. which I'm proud to to say and like talk about and share with people. And it keeps me motivated because I always refer back to it. And I refer back, I like look back to my previous successes and I'm like, okay, so how can I do better than 2018 Carmela? How can I do better than 2017 Carmela? It's where some of my motivation stems from. Wow. Again, there's so much that you just covered that, first of all, I just have to say, and I mean, I'm probably going to say this again at the end of the interview, but I mean, your fortitude is astounding to still persevere throughout all of that is is just, I, I hope people that are listening can really sort of grasp how much you've had to go through to get to where you are today and how you still like maintain this forward thinking, positive attitude, like my hat goes off to you for that. Just, I have to just say that off the top, but like prior to our conversation, I know you talked about, you know, the intersection of design and food and environmental racism and the African diaspora. And it sounds like, you know, like you said, it came across while you were doing this, this studying abroad. If there's anything that people can kind of take away from this, how can they sort of get started with trying to, I don't know, kind of reanalyze their connections to food or I don't know. I don't know if I'm even saying this right. The food systems, I guess, is probably a better way of putting it. I would have to say you have to start by acknowledging that they exist and also acknowledging that they are not perfect and that they're far from perfect. And because of this imperfection, they are putting marginalized communities that are being disproportionately affected by harmful conditions such as, you know, polluted air and unclean water, lack of accessible grocery stores that provide quality over quantity, which mm-hmm. is a personal preference of mine when it comes to food as a whole. And also just looking at where you you come from, like what are your experiences with food? How have they shaped you? Because I know that every person who has ever eaten anything has a good and bad experience with food. And like for me, food is is so human. It really connects us, you know, on a daily basis as a black person, I think about race. Like when I wake up, when I go to sleep, Mm -hmm. it's uncomfortable. And when I think of something like, what is the thing that, that connects us where you just think about it. And most people don't think of race straight away. And I'm like food, like no one goes to Burger King and they're like, this is one racist whopper. No. <laughs> no one no one thinks that. They're just like, oh, like this is a cheap meal. I'm gonna enjoy myself like while I consume this. I may or may not feel better afterwards, speaking as someone who doesn't eat meat. <laughs> but yeah, it's just it's the experience as a whole and seeing how access and privilege go hand in hand when it comes to to food. I mean, that's something that's so important to me. I think about like, all the times that all the food experiences that I've had, especially with my mother, who in my youth worked like six and a half days a week to provide for my sister and I. And some way, somehow, she'd still be able to cook for like four hours a day, which I, to this day, I still don't know how <laughs> she did that. Like, she would call it quick service food. And I'd be like, mommy, this is not quick at all. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't know how you do this. Yeah. But she's a constant source of inspiration and love. And yeah, she's just taught me, whether she knows it or not, <laughs> has taught me so much about 
how I connect to my roots. I connect to our roots, our motherland, through the dishes that she has cooked, whether they are full-fledged Liberian dishes or they're Liberian-American dishes. Or sometimes she'll, like, li- like this isn't a real word, but, like, Liberianized, like, Italian food or, like, Chinese <laughs> food. She'd be like, oh, you want to try Chinese food? Okay, but then I'll taste it, and I'll be like, mommy, this tastes just like the rice and spinach you made the other day, which is Liberian. And she'd be like, no, it's different. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's just really, yeah, it's really nice to think about how my design aesthetic has evolved so unexpectedly. I would have never expected to be as interested in food as I am today. Like, Mm. pleasant surprise. Genuinely a pleasant surprise. I think the first time I really started hearing about these concepts actually was at... It was at a design conference. It was at uh, Black in Design, which is a, a conference that takes place every other year at Harvard Graduate School. Well, it's Harvard University's Graduate School of Design. But I think it was maybe the first year that they had the event, which was 2015. And one of the presentations actually was around like, it was around environmental racism. And I think they were calling it like, food justice, I think. And essentially what they were doing was they were in this inner city neighborhood and that's a food desert and they were providing like home cooked meals that are from, from the neighborhood, like the vegetables are grown there, et cetera. And then what they would do on Sundays is, is set up like a long table in the middle of the street, like a series of long tables. So people had to like, eat across from each other and it would like bring the community together. And like where I'm at now, I live in Atlanta. I live in the West end, which is a a historically black neighborhood and we have urban gardens here and sustainability is a big part of this neighborhood, even with gentrification starting to encroach upon the neighborhood and, and almost like snuff that out. Actually, that's, that's an interesting thing, how gentrification comes into some of these neighborhoods and disrupts these sustainable systems. Like, I'm starting to see it a little bit here in Atlanta. I don't know if it's that way in other places. I would imagine that it is. But, like, we've always had, I mean, for this even to be a black neighborhood, like, it's super vegan. <laughs> like, it's super <laughs> vegan friendly. We have two vegan soul food restaurants. We have a vegan donut shop. There's a Shrine of the Black Madonna, which is not too far from where I live. And I mean, the, the Muslims that are there are always like out with bean pies and fresh fruit. Like it's a very vegan friendly, like neighborhood. And then gentrification has started to like slowly encroach upon it. And now we have like gastro pubs. I mean, yeah, gastro pub is nice, but like, who is that for? It's not for the people that already live in this neighborhood. That's for sure. It's for the people that are moving in and want to have, I guess, those particular creature comforts from wherever they came from initially. And it's disrupting the general kind of, you know, ecosystem that's already there. I need to visit Atlanta. (laughs) (laughs) I need to go there because where the vegan food is good, that is where my heart is like, we must go. So as soon as, you know, once the U.S. gets ourselves in shape and people can, like, move comfortably again, responsibly, safely, I'll be in Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah, we've got two soul. Well, they actually are called soul veg- vegetarian. We've got soul vegetarian. We've got cafe sunflower. We have Tassili's raw reality. There's a, a really good vegan pizza spot up the street from me called Bakari's. Yeah, come on down. <laughs> 
I'm curious, are you able to like do some of this work through AB partners or are you kind of just doing it independently, like in terms of advocacy and justice? I'm doing it independently. I'm trying to find time with my, within my current workload right now to, you know, look out for some environmental based, like food justice based organizations that need some type of storytelling rebrand or just maybe just a rebrand in general. Uh, that's something that I was actually doing the last like week, week and a half because I've, I've had the opportunity to work on some really amazing content for uh, some fabulous clients, but I really, I haven't had a chance yet to work on, to work on like work with a client that has like similar interests to me when it comes to, to food justice. So that's something that I'm definitely on the lookout for. There's this one project that I saw. I don't know if it's a project or if it was just a like a design exercise, but you had it on your website called Black Magic Oats. Where did that idea come from? Oh my gosh. So for anyone who knows me, they know that I love going to grocery stores. It's so it's such a gross habit because there's so many problems with grocery stores as a whole. But I just love the colors, the textures, the smells. I just love the experience of going to a grocery store. And one thing that I've noticed my entire life is why is there an ethnic food section? Why is there an ethnic food section? But then, for example, when you go into the aisle of that is for like pastry and like baking goods, like maple syrup and stuff. And then you walk by and like you see the pancake boxes, waffle boxes, and there's like Aunt Jemima like slapped in the box. Like, why isn't she in the ethnic aisle? Mm. Like, I had all these questions about like, why is uncle ben's in the rice aisle but not like in the ethnic aisle why is there an ethnic aisle like what does ethnic mean and just like all these questions popping up in my head and the experiences that i had when it came to my mom making liberian food she wouldn't go to stop and shop stop and shop is a very much an east coast thing i don't know if it's um anywhere else Mm -hmm. but shop like i just grew up going there all the time like she wouldn't go to this like super commercial grocery store to buy ingredients to make Liberian food. No, she'd go to the mom and pop Liberian store and buy imported ingredients from there. So it just that relationship between going to the grocery store where, where you're, you know, you go to buy ingredients to then prepare and to make into your dish. There was always a break in that process for me growing up because we always had to detour to another grocery store to complete that, to complete that circle of, you know, going to the grocery store, you buy your ingredients, you go home, you prepare it, you eat the meal. Like we had to go to more than one grocery store. So <laughs> that was something that just really s- stuck with me. And in the making of Black Magic Oats, I was like, it's really interesting how it's a literal, for me, like the project was a literal take on the white man's consumption of, of blackness with no intention or recognition of what it means to be black. It's just like, oh, like I'm going to I'm going to consume these products, I'm going to consume this this culture for my own curiosity and then once that curiosity is fulfilled it's like, okay, that's cool. I'm going to continue being a white person. And that's something that's always bothered me because it it makes it seem as though it's just this like temporary show. Mm-hmm. Like an experience to be black. Um, and that's something that white people want to experience. Like, oh, like I'm paying for this. It's so different. It's so unique. It's so exotic yeah. from my day living. 
And that was something that I was like, this is really, I mean, obviously it's messed up, but like, how is it messed up? And yeah, so like when I was working on this project, I really wanted to embody like how I think that white people think about consuming blackness sometimes. Mm -hmm. And something that I wrote on, when, when you look at the project, I wrote at the bottom of the poster, have you secretly admired or envied the physical characteristics of Negroes and harbor a desire to enhance your own features? Look no further, white America. Quaker magic black oats are your one-stop shop to fulfillment in every bite, discovering new you with bodybuilding, derriere expanding, skin browning, vitamins and minerals with a sprinkle of society's most socially acceptable Negroes. Each grain looks and tastes exactly alike with no differentiating qualities. You won't be able to tell one grain from another and neither will the missus. <laughs> that almost sounds like it could be a skit on like the Chris Rock show or Chappelle show or something. I mean, one, you're, you're playing up kind of the nostalgia that comes from like mid-century advertising but also taking on the concept of consumption, but then also like over-processing because what ends up happening even with that consumption is that it's not, it's not a one-to-one transference. Like, you know, white people tend to take it a little bit too far. And then you're like, okay, that's too much. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) When do you feel the happiest? It just, I mean, we have a big smile. You just asking that. (laughs) You mean like today or in the past? I'd say just like in general. I mean, this is a time when I think, you know, especially as black people, we have to snatch joy where it comes. So like what makes you the happiest these days? I would have to say, (laughs) it sounds so cliche with everything that I've spoken about. I would have to say cooking. (laughs) Cooking makes me really happy. Like the roommates that I live with, we are very different. We are queer households. We have Korean, we have Polish, we have Jewish. So the food and the experiences and the stories and the holidays are so different and so beautiful. And everyone, I don't know, I just like, I love living with my roommates so much because it's the best New York experience that I've had living in New York. Well, one of the best New York experiences that I've had living in New York. And that definitely brings me so much joy being able to to share a part of myself with my culture and, you know, heritage with them. And they're not judgmental in any way, shape or form. They're very opening to how I exist as a black queer female. And that is just, yeah, it like has me feeling very emotional right now because it just, it means so much to me to have, to have people that I can just exist with freely who don't look like me. Mm-hmm. And I- like that that's a need like that isn't a desire that I have but the fact that it just happened that I'm able to live in an apartment that we just I don't know we just like cater to each other in such like wholesome ways it just means so much to me and that makes me so so happy but yeah that's like one I'm surprised I got so emotional about that (laughs) (laughs) but yeah that's that's one big thing and being able to talk to my mom my sister knowing that they're okay and like like we've gone through a lot as a family since the beginning of the of the pandemic and just like quarantine like my mom has been super worried about me as she always is even when it wasn't in quarantine just like me leaving my apartment to go to work she'd be like please be careful and i'd be like mommy i'm just taking the subway it's 45 minutes i'll 
you know, I'll be fine. So yeah, just that brings me lots of joy. My partner brings me lots of joy. I love talking to, like we talk literally every single day. And when he doesn't text me back, I text him and I'm like, I'm starved of attention. (laughs) I know you're working, but who cares? So yeah, those little things. I'm also a super nerd. I love playing video games. I love watching anime. I have that like bonding time with my sister. We like have a whole night. It's usually Saturday night because she knows that I work a lot. And we'll have, I don't know, usually like four, five hours. We'll be playing video games together, remote, of course, because she's in Rhode Island with my mom. Or we'll be watching anime together. Or we'll just be talking on the phone about random things like internet culture, like her friends, my friends, like her being a a junior in college and seeking my advice or me being a part-time adult and seeking her advice as a new 20 year old (laughs) (laughs) for her age. She's very wise. (laughs) So yeah, all those things definitely bring me joy. One kind of general theme that I've had for the show, the show that I've asked every guest is around black futures and black futurism. I went to the Black and Design Conference, which I mentioned before. I went in 2019, pre-COVID. And that was like a huge theme that they were discussing is like, of course, Black people are in the future, but how? Like, where are we? Like, yes, granted, if you look at media, you probably don't see us depicted, particularly in science fiction. But Black people are not only in the future, but from the future in some ways. So the question I have is, how are you using your skills in design to help build a more equitable future? It's such a big question, but something that I have thought about so many times, especially as someone who is of this country, but not from this country, Mm -hmm. um, spiritually in a way, and spiritually, emotionally, I have so many feelings about about what it means to, to be an American, especially as, yeah, being Liberian, being Liberian American and growing up with the family that I have. One thing that and it's a big thing. One thing that I really want to achieve and how I see myself giving to future and present blackness and just like the black existence is being able to create a sustainable relationship between marginalized communities and the systems as it pertains to food and water nationally and also internationally and as a 25-year-old, I'm like, am I, am I thinking, am I dreaming too big? But I also don't want to, you know, to downplay myself. And for me, I really want to give back to my home country, the home country that I've never been to before. I've never been to Liberia. Um, and it's something that I always think about. Like, what can I do? Like, how can I do more for my community? How can I teach others more about my community? I do so through food. But as a designer, how can I do more of that? And for me, yes, like working at an amazing agency is a step in the right direction. But what I also want to do is I aspire to be a design engineer. That's a long-term goal of mine. I really want to be able to create and redesign systems that have disadvantaged marginalized communities of all you know shapes and sizes. And For me, I want to do so between the East Coast of the U.S. and West Africa because there's so much going on there that my mom tells me about and all I can do is just cry about it because it's like, why isn't anything being done? Like, why are people so poor? Why is the infrastructure not there? Like, why are we considered, you know, a country of the global South? 
like why are we in the place that we currently are in like why can't we move up like mm-hmm. all these questions up into my head and like for me like my purpose my sole reason for existence is to do something about it because like I can't sit here as a designer and and make things that are pretty that are perfect in some way and it's not helping someone yeah it's not conveying a message to someone and that's why I do find being a graphic designer really valuable because for me it's the foundation of how I want to build myself and like where I see myself in the next five years. Yeah. It's so important for me. And a kind of like side note to this like big dream of mine is <laughs> I've been learning Korean for the last year, which seems totally random, but I promise <laughs> you, it, it makes sense. It makes sense. Yeah. Like all of my roommates, they speak, I don't know, many languages and I'm monolingual, unfortunately. And I complain about it all the time because when my mom immigrated to this country, she knew I think like three or four languages, but she was so fixated, like, you know, like some immigrant communities are on assimilation that she was like, English, American, this, nothing else, mm-hmm. like I don't, nothing else. So I think I was like in my early teens, even like a preteen. And I had asked her like, Hey mommy, at the time I was learning French cause I went to Catholic school. And I was like, Hey mommy, like, do you know any languages? And she was like, oh, yeah. Like, I knew a lot of languages. I was like, what? Really? Like, say something. And she was like, I don't remember anything. And I was like, what? What do you mean? She's like, yeah, I don't remember anything. And I was like, why? And she's like, oh, because we live in America. That just, like, had me so dumbfounded. Mm. And I was like, okay, but there are Americans who speak different languages. She's like, yeah, but no, like you getting, you and your sister getting a good education is the most important thing. And there's no one here that, that really speaks the, the, the languages that I speak. So that what's the point? And funny enough, my mom uh, revisited Liberia for the first time, I believe a year and a half ago. And it was just culture shock for her. And I remember her, she called me from Monrovia, which is the capital of Liberia. And she was like, Carmela, it's, Things are so different here. I'm happy and sad at the same time. I'm feeling so many feelings. And one thing that I regret the most is not being able to speak to some of my friends. And that just like really stood out to me. So (laughs) going back to Korean, the reason why I'm learning it is because there is a lot of industrial development and also service development within West Africa and East Africa from East Asian countries. Mm -hmm. And like for me as a designer, the most important thing to designing is you're not designing for yourself. For me, that defeats the point of design unless you are, I don't know, unless you're drawing like a butterfly on a piece of paper because you really enjoy butterflies. Like that's not me. Like unless I'm doing that, like I design with the intention to fulfill someone else's narrative, you know, making the invisible visible through my work currently and what I want to do in the future. So like for me learning Korean, I want to be able to interact with, you know, with Koreans who are working in West Africa and East Asia who are developing, you know, not just Koreans as a whole, but East Asian communities that are redeveloping, uh, which is a trigger word in my opinion, redeveloping various African countries in the West and the East for mutual advancement, which has so many underlying notions of colonialism and I have so many problems with. So like for me, what I want to do on, I don't know, hopefully within like the next 
five, ten years, depending on how the world looks, um, due to our current state with you know COVID and everything. I really want to be able to be a design engineer of sorts that is able to move between the U.S. and West Africa and be able to like speak these various language and be able to communicate the real stories and narratives of people who may or not, not will not, but who may not be able to speak to folks who are coming into their spaces and not seeking out the opinions and thoughts and ideas of the community that they are quote unquote creating things for redesigning things for mm-hmm. because it's not really for them. It's for the people that are creating and making these inventions. And that's something that doesn't sit well with me. So yeah, that's how I hope I'm a big dreamer. That's how I hope to contribute to black futurism. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? So folks can find out more about me on www, because I love www.melwilkins.com. <laughs> <laughs> Not enough pe- people use www anymore, but I'm, I'm old school in that way. Yeah, so you can find me on my website. It has all of my portfolio pieces on it. And yeah, more information about me. And also feel free to add me on LinkedIn. I love connecting with folks overall. All right. Sounds good. Well, Carmela Wilkins, I have to tell you, I was not, I had no idea how wide ranging this talk with you would be. I mean, you've taken us from the U.S. to abroad and back and going over all these different topics around environmental racism and food justice and everything. I mean, like I said earlier in the interview, I mean, just your own personal story and your drive and your fortitude to have gotten through the challenges that you have to get to where you are now. I feel like that's, if that does not set you up for success in the future, I don't know what is. And I hope that folks that are listening to this really get a good sense of like your drive and passion for this work like it's it's very clear to me like you know you're coming from this this background that is part in Africa part here in the US but then also you've studied and done work in Europe like you bring so much to the table that you're the kind of person that we need like to help usher us into the future just in terms of being able to take all the pieces and put them together in a way that makes sense so I'm really glad we had this conversation. I'm glad people were able to listen to this. And thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Big, big thanks to Carmela Wilkins. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Carmela and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our sponsor for this episode, Facebook Design. To learn more about how the Facebook design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Are you looking for some creative consulting for your next project? Then let's do lunch. Visit us at yepitslunch.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by R.J. Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So what did you think of this episode? Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram, or even better, by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. 
I'll even read your review right here on the show. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.